Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hey there. Hey, Dennis Quaid is here. That's right. And guess what? I have a podcast. It's called The Denissance, and I think you should listen. I'm having some really cool conversations with some really interesting people like music legend Billy Ray Cyrus, housewife of Beverly Hills, Garcelle Bouvet, and many, many more. Listen to The Denissance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jingle Jared. In my former occupation, I was the biggest jingle writer of all time. Now, I'm looking for a new job, speaking to every entrepreneur that I can find so I can find out what it's like to transition from one career to another. All of this expert advice has become the bedrock for a podcast I'm calling Occupational Therapy. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find the ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Lips L.A. Hey guys, welcome to the show. It's Scott Lips. This show is a real pleasure for me today. One of my oldest friends, Norman Reedus, the star of Walking Dead. You guys might know him from The Walking Dead and his show on AMC Ride with Norman Reedus. But truth is, Norman has been going at it for many, many years. He started out many years ago um, taking pictures, doing his art, ended up doing some cult favorites like Boondock Saints, and has gone on to become the most famous zombie slayer in the world, 10 years of The Walking Dead. There's almost nothing that Norm hasn't done. Uh, this is a great conversation. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Um, this show is coming to you live from WeWork, so shout out to all the fine folks at WeWork. If you like the show, please make sure you subscribe, you rate, you review it, tell a friend, tell five friends. Either way, it's super helpful to us. But in just in a moment, Mr. Norman Reedus. Hello, hello. Hey, what's up, buddy? There he is, my man. How are you, Norm? I'm good, dude. I'm good. How you doing? Live from Atlanta, Georgia, right? <laughs> well, half live. Half live. Almost live. I'd rather you be in person because the truth is we're good buddies and I love to see you in person. We got to hang a little while ago at the, at the GNR show, which was very cool. We did. That was fun. That was, was awesome, quick. bro. I would actually say I'm part of your like New York posse, you know, me and Nur and a bunch of your other friends that we kind of been friends for many, many years. So this is that's right. That's right. This yeah, is awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, this yeah. this this uh, show, Norm, is sort of like this is your life. You know, this is your path, your journey. I know that so many people know you from The Walking Dead and Ride and 
million of the stuff, you know, obviously being an artist and a photographer and a director and all the great things you do. But I think people knowing your path and your journey is always super interesting, how you started, how you got into it. You grew up in Hollywood, Florida, right? Yeah, I was born there. I didn't really grow up there. I only lived there a short time. I think I lived there like maybe two weeks, maybe less than a week. I don't know. But I don't I don't really know Florida that well, to be honest. And I've I've never been to, back to Hollywood, Florida. I did an episode of of Ride where Peter Fonda and I went from the top of Florida to the bottom of Florida and one of the one of the our cop escorts I asked if we were gonna go by Hollywood, Florida and he said, You don't wanna go there <laughs> right. And I said, Why? And he said it's just dangerous and horrible and I was like, Oh, okay. Cause, but I was hoping to see it. But I, I haven't been back to be honest. I was going to say you were like, hey, let's go there because that's you, right? You love like a little bit of the danger. Yeah, I wanted to see it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you go see you, somewhere wherever I came from. Yeah, you, you jumped around a lot as a kid. I mean, I know that. It's funny because mm-hmm. doing all this research for the show, I found out that you're actually sort of in almost like a, a tennis scholarship when you were younger, uh, which I never knew I, about you. Um, crazy. And you were sort of... You yeah, it was to, good. Yeah, it was good. And that that's kind of where you started jumping around a lot as a kid, right? Because you went to school in Kansas and then you were just kind of jumping from place to place, right? Well, a bit. I mean, my mom moved around a lot, and my dad was, he was doing other things. So we bounced around a lot even before that. And then we ended up at a uh, at an, an apartment complex, and one of my friend's mothers sort of uh, kind of adopted me kind of in, in a way. And, you know, like she would buy me sneakers or she would like feed me and I go there after school she'd make me sandwiches and I just really liked this lady and she played tennis and she I just wanted to hang out with her so she kind of taught me how to play tennis bought me uh this racket that was a, a Yamaha racket believe it or not it was made of uh basically plastic it was like a fiberglass racket and it was like bright red and uh I got kind of good at tennis and she put me in a tennis tournament and I won the tennis tournament and it was, uh, I was kind of, I was like 12 years old and I won like the 16 and under because the, the 14 and under and the 12 and year, year and under were full. And I won the tournament and the guy came up to me and, uh, you know, he was like, I want to train you. I want you to travel and, you know, do tournaments and stuff. And, uh, I was like, well, you got to talk to my mom. <laughs> and he showed up at our house. And at that point, in the family household, it was a little turbulence, and he came to the house, talked to my mom for a bit, and she said, you should go with him, and I was like, what? And your and mom was like, you can travel when you're 14 for some years, or so did she have hesitations about it at that point? Uh, she was kind of like, you should do it, and, uh, you know, it was, it was it was at a time in my life as a young boy when I was kind of getting knocked around a little bit, so... I ended up leaving with him and, and doing these tournaments. I went to Boletaries. I went to, <clears throat> I went to John Newcomb's. I just bounced all over, you know, doing tennis. And I, was, I thought that was what I was going to do. And then, you know, and when I first got to high, uh, high school, junior high and high school, like, they wouldn't let me play uh, school sports because I was already championship level at tennis and they wouldn't let me play it. And, you know, I was, I was, I had a devil's partner from Crest School, New Jersey. This guy, Doug Sachs, who was like really, really good. He was way better than me. And he was kind of like a rebel dude. He would like smoke cigarettes on the court. You know, he would just flip people off. And, you know, we'd wear like those baseball hats with the wings on them and we'd turn them around like horns. And, you know, we'd bet people like, we're going to beat you three and four. And then like we'd take money bets and we'd 
collect money. We just we were just like terrors on the tennis court. We were awesome. And uh and you know, and when it came time to go, you know, to graduate high school, I kinda bailed early, but I got a scholarship offer at a school, at a college, and I went there and sort of practice with the team before school starts. So I didn't actually really start the school. I just kind of went and almost did it. And then I left and ended up bouncing around a whole bunch of places and met a girl at front. She was from New York, but I, I met her in Japan. My mom left uh, while I was bouncing around. She left and moved to Motuokubo in Chiba. And she ended up marrying this dude who was a geochemist for an oil company. And she was like, you want to come live to Japan and live in Japan? And I was like, well, is my sister going to live there? And she goes, yeah, I'm inviting her too. And I was like, fuck yeah, let's go to Japan. So I ended up going to Japan and then you were what, um, 17 at that age. Or? Yeah. And you know, I was I bounced from school, went to Japan and my, you know, my sister came out and, you know, we started a relationship cause I didn't, I didn't live with her, you know, for a long, for many years before that. And met a girl there and met a bunch of guys there, and then they moved to London, and I followed them to London from there. And then from there, I went to Spain. I ended up in this area called Sitges, which is uh, kind of like West Hollywood now, but back then it was sort of a under underdeveloped little beach town, and I lived there, and I was living in this little tiny apartment with salt water coming out of the shower, and it was right on the ocean. There was lots of, like, that. A cat overpopulation problem. So there's little cats everywhere. And, and you I'm love, you love cats, so that was good for you, right? Oh, it was awesome. <laughs> you know, every once in a while, some little lady would buy a painting and I'd eat for two weeks. And, you know, was, I was doing that. And the girl that I had met in Japan came to visit me and she's like, what, what the fuck are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm doing this. And she goes, you want to move to LA? And I was like, she kind of talked me into it. And I followed her to LA um, and at that point, you've been, been doing art a little bit, right? You've been shooting some pictures. Yeah. You, that was sort of your path, or did you think maybe tennis I, is not going to be my path at that point? I really feel oh, like dude, the I, art thing is where I'm going. Yeah. I knew tennis wasn't my path. <laughs> yeah. I, I, like, I, remember, I mean, I just I wasn't good enough, and I wasn't driven enough, and it wasn't interesting anymore. And, you know, I had I played, uh, I can't remember the tournament. I want to say it was Kalamazoo Indoors or something like that. And, and that coach that had me, he, I twisted my ankle really bad, but you know, you, you play to beat a certain person for a ranking. You like, that's, that's kind of like your goal. You got to beat this guy to jump up in the rankings and it works like that. And I twisted my ankle really bad and he had my, my foot in a hotel trash can full of ice. And then he shot it with his stuff. And I was kind of like walking around like on a hoof and I had, I played this guy like that and I'm just like, I'm done. Like, this is, this is not my thing. Right? I'm going into and, art. Yeah. And I just, you know, I, you know, I did it in high school. I did yeah. it in junior high school. I you know, did the dark rooms. I, you know, I did all the classes and we basically go to like cemeteries and photograph fucking graves over and over again. But you know, that's kind of what I felt I could do. And I, I was doing that and, I followed her to LA and she hooked up with an ex-boyfriend and immediately, and I was like in LA by myself. And I met all these dudes that went to Otis Parsons and we started doing group shows together. Like, you know, the kind where you go and you hang your shit on the wall yourself and, you know, it's basically a party. And, you know, back then you couldn't get people to go to an art show in LA unless there was a band and an open bar. Like they just, they just didn't do it. It was, it was a, more of a New York thing. And you were living downtown, right, when you first came to LA? Yeah. Yeah. 
I was living down um, on uh, 7th and Santa Fe, which is like a trendy little restaurant area now. But Very sketchy then, it was back then. Like, Super sketchy it was back like, then. Yeah, it was like trash cans on fire, and there was one crazy Denny's where you eat at, and it was full of crazy people, and and you know, so I was down there, but we were doing group shows, and this friend of mine, Josh, he he went to Arizona in his truck, and he brought back all these big rocks, and they were orange rocks, but when you polished them, it kind of looked like white rocks with like fire inside. It was like this certain rock you can get out there, and he was going to Otis, and he was teaching me how to cut rock and his teacher had come to a show that we had had in Beverly Hills, which was, it was a restaurant that had gone under and it was an empty space. And so we had an art show there, but it was like mothers supporting the arts in Beverly Hills. It was like super <laughs> weird. And I did these, I did these, I took the, there's this, there's this newspaper out there called the recycler. It's, sure. it's, you know, you know what that is? Like uh, of you, course you, I remember that. That's where all the bands used to meet each other. I believe Slash met Guns N' Roses who oh, were for years ago. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. I, I used it to just, like, get junk to yeah. make work, artwork with. And I got uh, these seven French doors, these big French doors, and I took this little girl, Dia, and I plastered her body in all these different positions on these doors, and I elongated her at the knees and the elbows and the neck, and... Then I took these glass wig heads and had heads on them. I broke all the glass and put these strobe light things inside. And then I cocooned them in different gauges of wire. Like I did this shit like crazy weird shit forever. And and the dude that was the teacher of the school came to that show. And I didn't go to the show because I was too nervous. And and I had these two girls out of truck and they brought my stuff there and I told them where to put them. But you you would walk in. And the front room had Josh had taken the floor and he had put these these uh, like polyurethane floorboards on the floor and he had different colors of liquid under them. But and he would DJ and when he hit a certain baseline, the liquids would pop up and turn into different colors. Like he had them on this crazy system. Right? And when you walked down the long hallway, I had the back room, and you know they had like my blood all over them. And they were like, you know, it's that guy, and. <laughs> And the, the teacher had seen the show and he really liked my artwork in the back. And and he set it up like for the graduating class, they had to do a show. They had to put a show and sell pieces of art in the par- in a parking lot downtown. And he liked my thing and he knew Josh gave me some rock to cut. And I was cutting this rock and I made this giant vagina with a clitoris on the top. <laughs> and and as a like an experiment, he had me put it in the show. And it was the first thing to sell. So I was like rolling with this crowd of, you know, artists that were better than me. And and we would like do shows together. That's kind of like what we did when I got there. And then I got a job at a motorcycle place in Venice called Dr. Carl's Hog Hospital. And God, I'm like rambling. I just had a coffee. <laughs> and then uh, and then that it, that job went belly up. And then a friend of mine I think it was Josh Richmond, you know, I think he brought me, brought me to a party in the hills. I think it was Josh. He brought me to a party in the hills and I got really drunk and started yelling at people and someone asked me to be in a play. So we ended up going to Damiano's where they called the director of that play and they met me and they talked me into it. And they said, you'll probably just be, you'll be the understudy. So you'll probably never have to do it and we'll pay you. And I was like, done. And, and had you wanted to night, act at that point or was acting sort of not no. on your radar whatsoever? You know, I thought acting, I, I didn't know what acting was, to be honest. Yeah. I, 
And you're I like, I'm the understudy, so no one's going to call me anyway, right? It doesn't e matter. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm an artist. Right. I'm, you know, I'm this dark artist guy. I just want a bunch of cats and live in the woods. And, <laughs> right. Which, coincidentally, I do now, which is right. crazy. But, um, Full circle. Yeah, totally. But the, uh, the, uh, the dude didn't show up the first night, and, and there was a lady from William Morris in the audience who started uh, hip pocketing me, side pocketing me, whatever you call that. So where they don't give you a SAG card, but they send you out on auditions, thinking sure. maybe someone will like you. And uh, and I did it. And and Guillermo del Toro gave me my first movie. And what was it like working with him? Because he's an incredible director. So for Mimic to be your first movie, working with him must have been pretty incredible, right? You know, he, he kind of, I have to say, like he, he kind of didn't get in my way. I think he knew that I didn't know what I was doing and I was just riffing and I think he kind of liked it. So he, he gave me very little direction. He just gave me lots of encouragement and I, you know, I've worked with him a couple times now and there's something about directors like that because, you know, I mean, like he introduced me to Hideo Kojima, who I, I just did this interview with like an hour ago, talking about what it's like for him to direct. And they're kind of very like-minded. Like I get why those two guys are friends because like their enthusiasm is just infectious. They're like little kids. They're like, you can, you know, like a bad director, you, you'll throw an idea. It just sort of short circuit. They're like, no, no, I see it this way. And no, and they just kind of blow their top. And but those kind of guys, you, you know, let's let's try this, and they're like, yeah, and then try this on top of that, and then it's just a constant flow of creativity, and it's fun to work with them, and and Guillermo's like that, like you just want to hang out with them, you just right. you just want to like like hang out with them, like it doesn't matter what he's doing, he's just or a even fun it, guy. you know, dude, he's a fun guy, and like yeah. you're learning constantly, like just just to get a little glimpse of how his mind works and. It's fun. He, I mean, made, it's he made acting fun for me. Yeah. And at the same time, you're kind of doing some music videos, right, just to get by, right? And it turns out you end up doing videos with, like, Keith Richards and Radiohead oh, and all ton. these different bands. And so this was about the same time, around the same time when you did Mimic, right? It was kind of – I kind of did that right before Mimic. And Mimic was the first job that he gave me. But, but uh, there was there used to be this – I don't even know if it's still there. It was called Anonymous. And it was – it was a, like a music video commercial company that David Fincher had. And he had it. Tarsim was in there. Kevin Kerslake was sure. in there. Mark Romanek was in there. Was, those were like the up-and-coming directors that were like hot as shit. Like yeah. everybody knew them. Like anything they touched was like happening and it was the coolest stuff. And what happened was there was a girl named Fatima. And Fatima became a friend of mine. And she was this super cool girl. She had these big dreadlocks. And she was like, had super cool fashion sense. And she was, she knew everything. She like, would give me books like Master and Margarita and Venus and Furs and just, you know, really cool dark art stuff. And I was just fascinated with her. And she was dating Tarsim. And Tarsim was there. And he put me in a video. I think he put me in, uh, it was right. I met her right when they were doing that losing my religion video, and she was like explaining, like she was doing the art prep for that video, and she was explaining that that whole concept for the losing my religion video was um, from a movie called The Color of Pomegranates, which I believe was an Indian movie, 
and it was like you know the milk landing on the chest and the birds in slow motion it was basically all those all that stuff came from that movie and i was just fascinated with like her sense of art and her understanding of imagery and and she and i became good friends and and tarsim put me in a video i, I think it was for another rem video it was like Strange i think one way yeah that was it yeah, yeah. And they, they chased me down the street in the car. And, you know, they're like, oh, would you like to work nine hours and make, you know, $10? I'm like, yep. <laughs> you know, and and those that group, that anonymous content, those dudes would sort of pass me around to do their music videos. I was kind of I was kind of like their guy for a while. And you it was did everything Bjork, from, yeah, you did Radiohead. I was going to say you did everything from like Radiohead to Ugly Kid oh, Joe out of all bands, right? And I, Dude, I did every, I did anything they would pay me $10 to do. <laughs> did you get to hang out with Keith Richards when you did the video with him? I did. You know, he, he, was, he was cool. He goes, uh, he kind of was like, you, hey, what's your name? And I was like, Norman. And he's like, yeah, come with me. You want to go to my trailer? You know, and you want to hang out? And I'm like, fuck yeah. He cased me in his trailer and he's getting a haircut, right? Someone had come over and said, hey, you got to go have a haircut. And he's like, hey, you want to come with me? I'm like, yep. And I'm sitting there, you know, on his, you know, in the back of his like little sofa trailer room and he's getting a haircut and he looks over and he goes, he goes, you know how I got this haircut? And I'm like, nope. And he goes, he goes, my mom gave me money to get a haircut when I was a little kid, and I kept the money and cut my own hair. It's been like this ever since. Was just like, <laughs> I was like, fuck yeah, He's you're Keith coolest. Richards. He's the coolest. Yeah. And so all you the, know him? You, know, you probably actually, know Keith I actually Richards. don't know Keith. I know Mick, and Mick's awesome, but I actually never met Keith. I know Keith is good friends with our buddy Nur, and but oddly enough, yeah. I never got to hang out with him. Uh, I do love the Stones, so that, that's awesome. So you start doing all these videos. The movies are a little bit after, and before you know it, yeah. you end up being in this cult classic, The Boondong Saints, which... I don't mm. think at the time it was even released theatrically, right? Maybe two theaters released it or something? Well, it was never released in a theater. Those two theaters, the director paid for to show the crew. So everyone's like, it made this much money and it only went to two theaters. It didn't even go to two theaters. It, it, what happened was that movie, first off, like everybody and their mother wanted that movie, that, those parts. And, you know, he auditioned like everyone from Keanu to Mark Wahlberg to Ian McGregor. Like everybody was trying to get those two brothers because that script was, was like super hot. And, you know, the story behind, you know, Harvey Weinstein, you know, buying the bar that he worked in to get the thing. And, you know, and he had a deal at like Warner Music. I mean, like that guy was like hot as shit yeah. at the time. And, you know, and I, you know, I met him and he liked me and he kind of fought for me to be in the movie. And I remember like uh, Harvey Weinstein wanted, he wanted John Bon Jovi and Steven Dorff to play the brothers. And I think he had a deal where he owed them a movie or something. So he wanted those two guys to play the the part and and that turned into kind of an argument with Troy the director and you know and all of that shit went down and and I ended up doing it and I I got to you, I never ever received a Miramax script after that to read to audition wow. for not one not one ever <laughs> and why do you and, think that is cuz that guy's a fucked hard that's why <laughs> and and so he you know he he he, he just, I don't know, he had egg on his face, I guess. Yeah. He couldn't let me be in a thing. So so what happened was that movie, you know, and we knew we had, like, lightning in a bottle with that movie. It was just, it was had all the stuff. And that movie went to Sundance. It was in competition at Sundance. And the, the guys that run Sundance were calling Troy and going, you're on the short list on, on every judge. Like, you're going to win Sundance. Like, without a doubt, you're winning Sundance. And that was like on a Friday and they flew in, 
to LA. They took the director and the producers and everybody to dinner and they're like, you're going to win this shit. Like, you know, and then Monday came around and the, the announcements were made who got in and we weren't on the list. And the rumor is that Harvey called him and, and he also had, uh, what was that? Shakespeare in love that year, I think. And, the rumor is that Harvey had the movie pulled, like threatened the guy. I was like, oh, I'm never going to do this. I'm going to bury you if you put Boondock Saints in there. And I said, we weren't on the list. And I remember Troy called that guy up and he was like, hey, what's up? We're not on the list. And the guy goes, I don't know what you're talking about. I just hung up on him. Wow. And yeah, so we, you know, and that, that movie never went to theaters and it was just passed around from college dorm to college dorm. And I remember, you know, that was when Blockbuster was around. And I remember going into Blockbuster and it was two complete walls of that movie. Like it wasn't, it didn't have a section. It had a wall and a half, you know. <laughs> well, it became a cult and, classic, right? And so I don't think, did you ever think that movie would become such a cult classic like it did and it has become? Uh, I don't, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know about that then. But, you know, Blockbuster said it's the highest rented DVD of all time above Titanic. Wow. Incredible. And the movie never went to a theater. Yeah. And and I I remember seeing pictures of the guys in Japan that owned Blockbuster and they had a huge party for it and they had a like a five foot cake with the cover of that movie as, as the cake and they were like celebrating and you know, but but no, I didn't you know I, I in a way it was it kind of was cooler to become a cult classic dude that 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 movie became so big on its own. Like the people made that movie a big yeah. thing. They, there was no advertising. It wasn't how many posters were up. It wasn't how many commercials were on TV. Like it was legitimately like word of mouth and it got that big. And, you know, that movie kind of bounced around and, you know, also I had like all the agents, you know, trying to send me box to boxing matches in Vegas, sending me <laughs> gifts. And, you know, like it was Everyone's like, your friend. I was like, yeah, I was like <laughs> shopping for people, right. you know, and uh, and but I, you know, it's cool. I, I I like that it did that. You know, I still have never received a residual check from that movie. There was a producer named Yuli Samaha that ended up, I think, stealing all the money. To be honest, like he declared bankruptcy, started another company, declared bankruptcy. He did it so many times. I remember Will, Willem Dafoe and Sean Patrick Flannery and I were in a lawsuit with SAG to get residual money, and they're like, it's gone. Like, this guy stole it. So it's interesting because you've done so well the last 10 years, and, and obviously you've consistently worked great as an actor, but during that time period, people should know too, right? You really probably still didn't have a lot of money. You were still trying to you know, get by. I, you know, I actually heard something that you said you were eating like top ramen for years, which I can relate to wholeheartedly because I did that for many years oh, moving yeah. out to LA as a musician. So at that point in time, were you still trying to make some money in, you know, in, in film and were you still trying to make sure that you got your, even having a successful movie, it seems like you weren't getting paid, right? Oh no, I was completely broke. I, you know, I was still doing artwork. Like if I sold something, like there used to be something up at the picture factory, which was David Lynch's company. He had something. But if I sold a piece of art to anybody, it would. I could make that money last so long. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, 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 I really, I, I, you know, I was really good at pinching pennies for a long, long, long time. So yeah, so that movie comes around. You end up doing the sequel too, right? So you do the Boondock Saints oh, too. Shit. And then, which I didn't like as much, to be honest. Like it was very light in the brothers, but you know there was, it, you know, everybody asked me all the time, like, when are you going to make a Boondock Three? And I'm like, I, I don't think ever. I don't think it's ever <laughs> going to happen. That That's that it. director, kind of, 
he kind of lost the plot. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he kind of, he fucked Sean and I over like so many times. And Sean, I think last time we saw him, Sean was like, I'm going to joke him out. Like it, <laughs> it just, you know, and then every once in a while he'll come back and be like, Hey, we want to do this. Would you be in on it? And I'm like, nah, Dick, like <laughs> I don't want to be a part of it anymore. People don't you hear know, that so, side of the, the film business, right? That you can do a successful movie and still not get paid on. It's like musicians back in the day, not getting residuals. So it's uh, not surprising that that happened to you. Um, it's funny. I didn't even well, know that you ended up doing Blade after that. So that was like your next big movie, right? It was, yeah, that was a big one. That, and that was with Guillermo again. And, and you know, there was, there was a, there was a documentary called Overnight about that director of Boondock Saints. And, you know, for years, you know, his reputation would catch up with him and people would say, Oh, I heard he's a, dirt, a dick. And I'd be, you know, Sean and I both were like, no, he's great. If you had enough footage of Santa Claus, you can make him look like an asshole. Like I must've said that line like a thousand times, right. you know? Right. And then overnight came out and you know, the, the thing was, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, but it, it, that went yeah. to Sundance and it was, uh, he had some friends of his that were following him around because and they were videotaping his life because, you know, he had a music deal. He was working on an album. He had this. He was on the cover of Time magazine. He was like the thing. And he had friends of his that were documenting him. And I think they asked him, they were like, hey, we've spent all our money doing this documentary. Can you throw us a bone so we can pay rent? And he was like, fuck you. You're lucky to hang out with me. Mm-hmm. And and he they took the footage and they they put it out. You know, and I'm sure they cut it in a way where he looked as bad as possible, you know, but he did say those things. You know, like yeah. he's you on camera saying Sam. things. Yeah. yeah. And what and you don't expect? say him on camera for sure. Yeah. And if you screw yeah, a bunch of people so, over, that's sort of, that's what comes with the territory, I guess. Right. Karma. Yeah. yeah. Karma got him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I did uh mimic and I did blade after that. That was like six months in Prague. And then when I got back from, you know, we had that, we had that gallery in New York forever, uh, collective hardware, me and some friends. And we used to do it down in Tribeca there. I can't remember that artist in New York. He's an older guy. Um, he, and he would do like neon signs that would say like silly things. And he was kind of known for that in New York. And there was his wife and him would do those pictures of horses. Like there's really like fantastic glamor shots of horses that were literally like all over Soho in every storefront forever. On like, Grand Street, actually. I know that Roberto Detesto, yeah. maybe, I think is his name. I can't remember his yeah. name, but he was like, he was he, like on like on Crosby Street, too. Like, yeah. remember the Vespa shop that yeah, was there course. that's now something else? Yeah. So that Vespa shop had him in the windows forever. And, but anyway, he had space in Tribeca and it was underground. It was like the basement and the, the ground floor and we used to do these crazy videos and do these crazy dinner parties and costume and make these insane like films down there and stuff. And then that crew ended up getting a backer who had that whole building on Kinmer and Bowery. So we had that whole thing. We had like Eric Foss up there and Paul Savigne and uh, Ronnie Catrone. And so we had all these stations up there for like, you could have, everything from glass blowers to painters to editors. And then we had a creature effect shop in the basement called a willed and they'd make like giant saber tooth tigers for the discovery channel and <laughs> do all these monster effects. So, so, you know, we had, if we wanted to make a movie, we had the camera over there. We had the lights over here. We had the makeup department over here. We had, we had everything to make these films. So 
we'd make all these crazy films and, you know, we took those films to France. We took them to Germany. Uh, you know, we played them in Berlin and Frankfurt, all over New York for different things. And then, uh, you, you know, Dom rocket, you know, him. So he was doing all these bands and stuff. So we were doing music videos for him. And then he and a friend would put on these like Mexican wrestling masks and they would DJ. And then I would put on a panda bear mask and I was pandito and I would do, <laughs> use this program to edit video footage. So I'd have uh, 10 screens in the room while they're DJing and I'd be DJing, DJing, DJing uh, fucking crazy footage, like chopping up footage. And like, you know, we had this whole thing going on, but when I did, Blade, I came back after that six months being away and Collective Hardware was like a disaster. It was like people sleeping on the floor. It was meant to be like the like factory, this, right? Or something sort of. Oh, dude. A well, it started off that way and then it ended up that way. You know, like <laughs> everything in New York, it becomes just a party place of hanger on. And, right. and you, it was just a disaster. And like we were always in page six and they were always mentioning my name. And then, that, you know. It was like, and I wasn't even there to like destroy it. So it was like, it was a real drag when that went downhill. And then I think Stuart Bronze, who was kind of the curator of the whole spot, he ended up doing uh, Whip, Work in Progress over on uh, 7th Avenue or whatever the fuck that was. Um, but yeah. So yeah, you, yeah, yeah. It was just one big whirlpool. So you have that going on. You're still doing films. And at some point you're doing a film. And I, I don't know if it's Andy Leibovitz or Ellen Bonham where sees you uh, and shoots some stills on one of the films you're doing, right? And um, She did. Yeah, it was Six Ways to Sunday. We shot that in Jersey with Debbie Harry and Isaac Hayes. And that, that on that set, uh, it was a guy named Adam Bernowitz was the director. I think I think that was his name. And he was super cool. And one day, Annie Leibovitz came to the, to the set, and she was taking pictures, you know, on set. And then she had dinner with Mucha Prada and... Mucha was at that time was doing uh, a series of actors in her campaigns like Tim Roth did it, Joaquin did it, a Japanese actor did it, uh, uh, a couple of people did it. And she took those pictures from the from set and brought them to Mucha and, and Mucha was like, oh, I'm looking for another actor to do the campaign. And she slapped down those photos. She goes, I took these. And then the next thing I knew, this manager I had at the time said, uh, hey, you've been offered a Prada campaign. It's between you and Nicolas Cage. And I was like, what's Prada? And she goes, it's a well, small brand. Well, I did, yeah, I didn't fucking know. I had like <laughs> one suit, me and all my friends were here. You know what I mean? And, and, and uh, they say, oh, we'll take you, we'll bring you to Paris and you'll get, they'll pay you this money and they'll, you'll get clothes forever. And I was like, well, that's cool. I've never been to Paris. And, and I ended up getting it, and and yeah, I was a model. So before you know it, you're in the product campaign. Had you met I was Helena a at that point? Supermodel for a minute. <laughs> yeah. had, had you met your supermodel girlfriend at that point, Helena, or was that uh, a little before you met Helena? It's I I mean that story. There's there was a girl named Yelena Yumchuk who's Ooh, a I know very well. Sure, of course. And I knew her from Los Angeles, and she was going out with this dude Jameed, who I really liked a lot, and they were like the greatest couple. Like I I. I loved those those two as a couple and and individually, but I think the story is you, Helena saw me in a magazine and said, "Who's this guy?" And Yelena goes, "Oh, that's just fucking Norman." And <laughs> Helena ended up finding my address from Yelena and and 
meeting me in Los Angeles at Josh, who the guy that brought the rock from Arizona, <laughs> his birthday party downtown at a Japanese restaurant called R23, which was like the first real restaurant down there. I and mean, like all the furniture was on cardboard and shit. Sure. And, and uh, she came to the party and then kind of found my address and we started hanging out and that's how we met. And by the way, uh, yesterday was Mingus's birthday, 20th birthday, yeah. which is crazy. Happy birthday, Mingus. Crazy. Shout out to Mingus. Yeah, man. I think I met Mingus because, yeah. as you know, I worked with Helena for many years. I think I met Mingus when he was like six or seven or eight at the most. And so it's crazy to see him grow up like this. And I think now he's going to school. He wants to do what, animation or something, Norm? He was doing animation, and then he, he got into uh, writing films and directing films and shooting films and also film scores. So... He he spent the summer at Howie B's in in London and in the south of France. Who's an old friend of mine, um, and Howie used to work with like Bjork and Tricky and Massive Attack. And his first job was with Susie and the Banshees. You he, too. He, he's been a music producer forever. And I ended up meeting him in an igloo in Gestat, of course, which was crazy. <laughs> and and I yeah, which is nuts. But he we just went and interned with him over the summer, and they made a soundtrack for a movie with Ry Cooter about the kids um, in the Philippines that were trapped in that cave. There was a movie oh, that right, was made sure. about it, and they, sure. ended up, they ended up making the soundtrack for it. Amazing, amazing. So, yeah, so he's into that right now, and he's doing, a, I don't know, what, whatever that concert in New York this weekend, he's, he's doing two days of that for his birthday. So he's with a bunch of friends doing that. Awesome. Well, fast forward, you know, obviously the last 10 years you've been on the most successful show on cable TV, The Walking Dead. We spoke about that when I saw you the other day. It's actually the number one show on cable TV for many years, right? I think that's an accurate yeah. statement. Crazy, and, uh, right? It's crazy. And, and the, the whole story about how you came to be on that show, I mean, you were written onto that as a character that wasn't in the original comic book series, right? That character was not in the comic book of Daryl Dixon. And you had sort of a small role. I think it was like the third episode, even though those guys on the show had been together for about a year. And did you ever think that that small role would sort of turn into what it has become like 10 years later? Well, well, it, it started, uh, I'd never done pilot season, and that's where you go to L.A., and they show you all the new television shows, and you read all the television scripts, and and I got out there, and it was, uh, it, you know, I, I didn't like any, it was like buddy-buddy cop drama, hospital <laughs> drama, roommate drama, it was like kind of all the same shows, and because uh, that was what was popular right then, and and. There's a zombie show, and it had Galen and Hurd, and it had Frank Darabont, and I was already watching Mad Men and Breaking Bad, which are already on AMC. And, and but is it true that everyone told you not to do the show, right, when you first got the yeah, script? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. Nobody really liked it. It was No one thought it would go very far. And But it was only one night I was reading that, like, you know, it, I didn't really read zombies in that opening pilot script. It was about a guy who woke up in the hospital, and the world was fucked, and he was on a hunt to find his family. And it was so well written, especially that pilot script. And you know, they're like, "Oh, is there zombies in it?" And I'm like, "Yeah, but that, that's such a bad. It's such the background. It's like it's not the story." And and I and I went in and I read for it, much to everyone's refusal to let me love it. And and I read the the part of Merle, but I had been told that Michael Rooker was playing that part. And so I thought maybe he couldn't do it, or he said no. And you know, I went back in and I read some more moral lines like a couple of days later. And again, I heard Michael Rooker was doing it. So I didn't know what was going on. And I came back to New York 
and they asked me to put on be put on tape uh, with some different lines, and I was leaving that that reading, and I I was walking back to Chinatown, and I got a I got a call that Frank Darabont wrote a new part for me because um, they liked my audition. He and Kirkman and Gale liked my audition, so I was in a new part, but it wasn't in the comic book. And that you know, there's an old there's an old movie that uh, William Defoe's and William he's. Uh, He's like a biker dude, and and he goes. Somebody said, "Hey, how you know?" I think he like hooked up with some girl or something, and they go, "How was it?" And he goes, "The door was wide open." So <laughs> I was like, I, I always like people say, "Oh, how do you how do you feel that you're not in a comic book?" And I'm like, "The door is wide <laughs> open." So I, I I don't really I can I'm, I'm kind of free to go in different directions. I don't have to follow the storyline of a comic book, you know? Yeah. You sort of almost changed the arc of the show in a little way because there's certain things that you've done in the show that I know that have led to additional storylines that probably weren't in there initially, right? I've, I've uh, for sure. Yeah. So well, there was like, you know, there was like, there was a scene where Carol, I go looking for Carol's daughter. Like everyone gives up trying to find the daughter, and I, I won't give up. I'm going to find her, and you don't know why. And she. While I'm in bed being bandaged up after I get back, she leans down to kiss me on the forehead and I and I flinch, like, don't hit me. And it wasn't in the scripts. And I just kind of kept playing it that way. And, you know, and they wrote a storyline that, you know, the, the story changed that I was an abused kid. And that's why I wouldn't give up finding the girl. And I, I you know, and that kind of became a storyline to me. So like, you know, if there's ever a scene on that show now, like I have to be in makeup for like two hours because there's so many stars and cigarette burns and shit on my back. So it just became this thing. And, and, you know, it's, I'd never done a, you know, I've done, never done anything really that lasted this long. So you, every time you, you'd sort of drop these little seeds behind you and they kind of turn to trees behind you as the story goes. So, it's it's nice having the time to do a character where things that you do become storylines like writers pay attention to ways that you play certain things and you kind of learn that they do that so you start doing that for them and you kind of collaboratively move on to changing the directions of of scripts and stories and characters and it's it's been a a real fun thing for me to do and you know and it keeps it interesting for me and it keeps the show interesting. And, and, you know, that, that character became really popular kind of during that. I mean, and, you know, sometimes we'll get writers on the show and they're like, Oh yeah, you're the guy with the crossbow growls in the corner with the hair in your face and you're filthy <laughs> and you ride a motorcycle. And I'm like, that's really, yeah, you. that's true. It's true. But that's not who the character is. The character has heart. And the character, you can believe him. He won't lie to you. He like, you know, it's it's kind of like a wild dog. Like if you, he's growling at you, but if if you can feed him and bring him inside where it's warm, like he'll follow you forever. Like he's loyal like that. And I had to explain to these writers, I'm like, that's that's when that character became popular. Is when you could see that the heart that he wears on his sleeve. You could you could see that he's. You know, it, you know, and there were early scripts that had me like being like my older brother on the show, where like I would say racist things, and I was taking drugs all the time, and I, you know, I went to the writers and I was like, I don't want to play it like that. I don't want, I don't want that. I want, I want a kid that grew up with that in the household, and he was always ashamed of it. And 
what that allowed the story to do is when that brother was out of the picture and I, I was with this new group, it allowed me to shed all those things and be the opposite of what, of what I was supposed to be. And, you know, like I played everything from that first scene I ever did kind of like off my left shoulder. Like I wouldn't look you in the face. I kind of like looked at you and looked at the ground. Like I assumed that you hated me. So I hated you too. Like I had a big chip on my shoulder the whole time. And as the seasons progress, I slowly turned to face you and my, and my shoulders are square to you and I'm looking you in the eye and you can believe everything that comes out of my fucking mouth. Like that's, that's how you see that broken dude become a man and, and step into his own shoes and be a leader and be someone you can trust. And that's, that's the development of that character. That's, which wouldn't have happened if I didn't, if those writers and those showrunners and those directors didn't give me the opportunity to mold it, to mold it in different directions. So, so how much of you being, is in Daryl yeah. and how much of Daryl is in you? I feel like there is definitely some morphing that's going on there, right? I feel like, uh, I know you pretty well and I feel like there's definitely some similarities in the characters. Would you say that there's, uh, uh there's a lot of you in Daryl or a little bit of you in terms of the, the actual, the character in yourself? I think as time has gone by, more of me has shown in Daryl, or at least. But you know, I've you've known me for a long time. Yeah. Like I've changed while I've been doing the show as well. Yeah. So it's vice it's vice versa. Like you know, I've I've you know, I'm not the, that troublemaker that when you first <laughs> met me, I was like, you know what I mean? Like you know, my friends would be like, let's go out to this place because you know there's girls, and I'm like, no, let's get drunk and burn something down. Like you know, I was more like that guy. I have to be honest with you, Norm. It's funny because before this uh, this call happened a little while ago, I called uh, our very close friend Nur that we have in common too, and I said, Nur, give me one Norm story because he has you guys have so many stories. I've been in a yeah. few of them, but he's like, talk to Norm about Halloween and when he was wearing a gorilla suit years ago. And this is exactly what you're talking about now. So can you, cause yeah. it's almost Halloween. So I'd love to hear this story cause it feels like it fits right into what you're talking about, burning shit down and, and, uh, yeah. and all that other stuff. Can you talk about that for a minute? I know what story he's, he's, he's always <laughs> teasing me on that. There's been, there's been calling me the next big thing for like 15 years. Yeah. Like he's, he's cracks me up, but yeah, like I used to have this gorilla suit that, I, you know, I wore it every Halloween, and every Halloween I'd lose the face and have to, I'd keep the body, but I'd be running around with no fuck, with no gorilla head on, and I'd have to get another gorilla head. So it became like a, a running joke. But yeah, one night we were out, and I was in the gorilla costume, and and we ended up like leaving someplace. I I can't remember, and. Uh, we found this giant teddy bear and it, the neck was cut. So all those little white balls were falling out of it. Right. So I'm carrying around this giant teddy bear with these little balls falling out. And, and this, this taxi pulls up to the light that we're standing near the corner of. And, uh, it's full of like these wall street guys. And I, I, I opened the back door of the car and I jumped in with all these wall street guys and start shaking the bear and screaming at them. And so there's little balls going all over the back seat. And <laughs> the Wall Street guys are screaming, freaking out, thinking I'm insane. Like, it was just one of those moments I couldn't help myself. And then we, we got out of the car and everyone's screaming. We're cracking up. And, uh, and we, put the, we, put the, we put it in a trash can and we caught it on fire. And the thing just went up like like. I don't know. It was not just went. It was super flammable, I guess. And 
it started burning all the fire trucks started coming towards us and Nur and I are just like running down the street and I'm in a gorilla costume. It was like, I think he was like a vampire. It was like, it was kind of a story. That's amazing. And I now, think that's, that might be the story you're talking about. Yeah, so that, is, that is the story actually. It's funny. And it's funny because I've been out with you quite a few times and now back then the cops would want to chase you. Now the cops, when I'm out with you, want to take a picture with you in a selfie and as the firemen do and everyone in the world, right? It's like, you can't actually go out in public with anonymity these days can you i mean i don't know do you like that or do you like being alone do you like the fact that the show's become so popular that you really can't go out in public without we went to the chili peppers once years ago i remember it was like being with at the time like michael jackson people were mobbing you uh and 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 it's just sort of does that ever get to you that you can't have that anonymity and you kind of want to be alone or do you not mind that because along with success comes those kind of things you know it's it, sometimes it's a huge pain in the ass and most of the time I don't really care. Most of the time everyone's really cool. And it's, you know, like, you know, if I'm peeing in a public restroom at the airport, some guy runs over and grabs me <laughs> by the shoulder and wants to take a selfie while I'm peeing. And I'm like, no, you know, and then, you know, it, stuff like, you know, it, stuff like that's crazy or, you know, like, you know, if I'm eating a sandwich on an airplane and, everybody around me is videotaping me and <laughs> I go in the bathroom of the airplane and eat my sandwich. Like then it kind of sucks. Yeah. You, know, uh, you know, I remember when it was first kind of happening, you know, Mingus would have his, he had a Facebook page and he and his friends would do their homework on Facebook together. And, and he had his Facebook account disconnected like every week, like, and people would go and steal his pictures and then try to, be him online and report his as being the wrong one. And he gets shut down and, and it literally happened over and over. And then like having little Mingus come to me and going, why is this happening to me? What, you know, I was, you know, I just felt horrible and you know, like things like that suck or, you know, I just had a, a new daughter and every time I leave the house, there's the paparazzi, you know, the parked in front of our house, like things like that suck. Um, but most of the time it's, it's fine. Like most of the time people are really cool and you know, you're right. Like I get a lot of cop love and fireman love and stuff like that. You get some weird gifts, right? I think you got a breast implant once as a gift. Oh, dude, I've gotten like a dozen breast implants. Like, <laughs> it's the weirdest gift the worst, ever. <laughs> the worst when I was doing this like line of photos with people and, and this, I, this one lady comes over and she's taking a picture and we're kind of like smiling with a camera and then she mumbles something vasectomy or something and, and leaves and I'm like th- three more down the line. I'm like, what did she say that lady? And then I'm like, what did she, she left a bag, like a gift on a table. And I'm like, what's in that bag over there? And she had had her breasts removed, but it was just the fat of the breast oh and they God. were, oh my God. they were wrapped in, in like plastic cellophane and then they were tied up and put in a fancy jewelry box. Oh my God. I guess cause the yeah. show's kind of macabre, you know, people probably think, Hey, Norm's going to like this. Uh, you know, the fat from my, <laughs> whatever it may be. That's, uh, that's so crazy. Um, well, I definitely want to talk yeah. about ride. So this is actually the coolest yeah. show in the world for you, right? Because at the end of the day, it's sort of like, the greatest thing you could ever love to do. I mean, you love to ride motorcycles. You love to hang out with great people, do your thing. And it's sort of like if Anthony Bourdain was riding motorcycles and being you and living your life. And it's the coolest job in the world. I mean, how cool is it? I think you're in your fourth season now, right, with Ride? 
Yeah, fourth season comes out in November, I think, and it's it's uh, it's fun. I gotta tell you, like when they, you know, I ride a motorcycle to work almost every day, and and one of the producers at uh, one of the executives at AMC said, "Hey, I got an idea for a television show," and I was like, "Yes!" Like before he even got out of his mouth, I was like, "Yes!" And you know, it's you know, like who do you want to do your hair and makeup for this? And I was like, "No one. I want helmet hair. Every time I take off my, I want it to be authentic, you know." And you know, it started off kind of a like a gearhead show. Like, you know, this is a so-and-so motor and a thingy. And and the more we did it, the more people would just run at us and, you know, attack us on the street and, you know, want to take a picture or want to talk. And, you know, and it, we could never follow, follow a structure because it, it became – it was like a, like we're on tour kind of. Right, right. And, and we just incorporated that in the show, and then the show got better because – we, you know, we were a little uptight, I think, in the beginning, and we loosened up, and it just got more fun. And the more fun we have, the more fun you have watching it. But, you know, it's it's really cool, I have to say. Um, Is there like a guest it, that stands out? I know you had Peter Fonda, you had Marilyn Manson, you had Rob Halford. So you've had everyone from rock stars to you know movie stars to pop culture stars to just friends, right? I know Patrick Hollick was on the yeah. show, Nur was on the show. I'm still waiting for the invitation, yeah. but I don't ride a bike, so I don't. Maybe you know, I'll be an extra in there somewhere. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, is there anyone you haven't had on the show? I know Cher, as Sonia always talk about wanting to get on the show, so let's put that out in the universe, right? Yes, Cher, Slash. There's a whole bunch of people. I'm, I'm always talking about Slash. He's like, I don't ride motorcycles, but I have cool cars, and I was like, <laughs> okay, we'll do that. You but, could do that, yeah. You know, um, I mean, Manson didn't ride a bike. It, you know, I got him on it, but it. I mean, I don't know, you know, they're all so different and, and not just the famous people, you know, like the real diehard riders, they're fun too. Like, you know, it, it's always different. We try to get a guest that knows an area so they can show me around the area, you know? Um, Any standouts but, that you're like, this was the coolest place you've been or, you know, my favorite story from the show. I mean, Spain was fun just because the amount of people that were following us everywhere. Like, we must have had a thousand people in the street running after our bikes while we were leaving an area in Barcelona. Like, I mean, it got a little dangerous because they were like jumping on the bikes and stuff. Um, they broke my mirror off my bike while I was pulling out. Like, we just got mobbed, but it was it was all good fun. It was like, you know, we we would venture off into a little area and you know. You know, sometimes they're like, let's ride around in circles in these blocks and get the architecture. And then I, you know, we're doing that and that kind of got boring. And, you know, the cameras follow me. So if I, if I make it right, they all have to go right. Mm -hmm. So so I see these little kids over there and they're playing soccer up against this wall. And and I just kind of went towards them. And so the car, you know, they have to follow me for security reasons and because they're filming us and everything else. And I veered off some playing soccer with these little kids and I'm like, where can we get some fireworks? And their eyes lit up and they took us down these dark alleys into this little tiny shop and there's fireworks everywhere. And so we went with these little kids to buy fireworks and we blew fireworks up on the, uh, you know, out on the beach and little like moments like that are, are the most fun moments. Like, Cause nothing's you know, scripted, right? The whole thing is done like yeah. on the cuff. It's completely off the cuff and, you know, some, you know, we'll have destinations to go and you have, you know, you have to block off roads and stuff like way in advance to get permits. So you kind of have to follow the direction, but you know, sometimes like, you know, some old lady would be like, to get off some Harley and she'd be like, you should go right, not left down. There's this. And we're like, we're going right. And then, you know, all the producers are like, no. And I'm like, no. And you know, <laughs> that's very, yeah. You know, so it's, 
Yes, we just we we kind of keep try to keep it fresh. I, actually, Anthony Bourdain's writers are writer for the show. Oh, amazing! Amazing. And, yeah, and he was a huge inspiration for the show. That and that long way around that Ian McGregor did and Charlie Borman. So those two shows kind of combined are kind of the dream show. Like Definitely. I love Long Way Around. Like my favorite parts of that show is like when they get stuck, you know, like stuck in a river or the mud or whatever. Like you know, it's real because you know, you know, like yeah, the producers are always like, oh, we we have to get you know, uh, you know, George Clooney. And I'm like, I like George Clooney, but like, I, you know, I don't want, first off, I don't know if George Clooney's going to wake up at six o'clock and hit the freeway with me. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? So it's, you know. And it, also, I can kinda, these, can these guys really ride well? Or is it sort of just like, yeah, I ride. And then when you really calm out on it, they really can't ride. Like, oh, like, dude, you'd be, su- you'd be surprised at the amount of rock stars and movie stars that I'm like, you want to do this? And they're like, yeah. And then they're like, are we going on the freeway? And I'm like, yeah, we're going to go on the freeway real fast for a long time. And, and like, yeah, I'm not really comfortable on the freeway or like, you know, this one rock star recently was like, he was like, yeah, I'd love to do it. And then when came crunch time, he's like, you know, I got to tell you, like, I've, I got a cool bike, but it sits in the garage. I don't want really to ride it. And like, you know, like, is it, can I practice? And I'm like, Oh God, he's going to die. You know? And so, <laughs> That yeah. happens a lot. You have to get my buddy Anthony Kiedis on the show. I'm sure he'll be. Uh, he's a. Dude, I'd love rabbit. to get him. Yeah, we got we got to hook that up. I remember he did. I remember way back when I lived in LA, he took a ride with this dude I know named Greer. Do you know Greer? I don't think so. No. Greer and he and he he they drove up to San Francisco like just like on a weekend they, and I was like I would love to do that with him because yeah. he's he's such an LA guy and. And I know that he knows LA so well. Like Definitely. that would be a good LA. Episode That'd be a great for episode sure. for sure. So I mean, at this point, you've done it all, Norm. I mean, we've been friends for years, but honestly, between the video games, ten years on The Walking Dead, Ride, the photography, you've directed stuff. Is there anything left that you really haven't done? I mean, you even have like your own action figure now, which is crazy, and your own air freshener, from what I remember. So, and you have <laughs> yeah, a restaurant like right now too, right? You got a restaurant too. So, what haven't you done that you still want to do that you're like? There's one box I need to check off that I haven't done yet. I want to say I'd love to learn how to play piano. That's what that's what I'm asking for Christmas this year is piano lessons. But the you know I also have a production company that is just now starting to get some things off the ground. So I I'd love to eventually get to the point where I can work in my pajamas. You know, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this Walking Dead's really beat the crap out of me over over you know ten years span. But the uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm really happy right now. I'm, just, I'm constantly finding these things I want to do, but I think piano lessons over that's going to be my Christmas present. I would have thought you would have said something completely different, but I think piano lessons are completely obtainable, and I'm sure it's something that uh, Diane will do for you for, for Christmas coming up, sure. Or are you already taking yeah. piano lessons? No, 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 that's my Christmas that's present. Okay, all right, yeah. very doable. Yeah. Well, hey, man, it's such a pleasure. You and I go back for years. Um, I love having you here. It's great. I hope to hang out with you soon again. I, I'm sure I'll see you next yeah. time you're out here. Let's get Patrick on next time so we can all do a, a Patrick Hogg hang with, with you. Uh, and uh, sure. and yeah, yeah, just um, everyone tune in. Walking Dead is in its 10th, and, uh, and now we're fourth season now for Ride. So anyone coming up on Ride, by the way, that we should know about on this season? Yeah, I got Ryan Hurst, who plays Beta on the show. We went to uh, Tokyo. I, I put him in an elephant costume and put him in a tiny little race car at night in the rain and had, and raced him around Tokyo. That was fun. Amazing. Uh, Milo from this is us. We went down to, uh, we went down to Osaka and Kyoto. 
um, Michael Rooker, who plays my brother Merle on the show, yeah. he and I drove from Alabama to to Atlanta and with Brent Hines from Mastodon, and we drove to Nick and Norman's, brought the two crews together from both shows had a big blowout there. And then the next morning I started walking dead. So that was a fun <laughs> one. Clifton Collins and I went to Kentucky. That was crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the shows it's that show's super fun. It, all the guests are fun. Awesome. Well go to, uh, also don't forget about your photography books, all your art. I mean, there's so much you have going yeah. on. So everyone uh, check out everything. Norman Reedus. I love you, brother. Yeah. I love you too. Bro. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. My pleasure. And, uh, we'll see you real soon. All right, bro. I'll talk to you. All right, brother. See you soon right. now. Later. Well, that was a fun one, having Norm on the show. Such a great time. I love Norm. He has got amazing stories. Uh, the show was brought to you today by Thursday's Boots. Thursday's Boot Company, a bootstrap startup that has been shaking up the industry by making really ridiculously high-quality boots that they sell direct to consumer at unbeatable prices. You guys have definitely seen me wear these boots. Thursday's Boots are the best boots around. Go to thursdaysboots.com. Check them out. Prices are really cheap, guys. They start at $149, free shipping. Some of the best boots ever. I'm obsessed with these boots. I'm sure you've seen me wearing them and rocking them in many photos. So go to thursdaysboots.com, check them out, and you'll be really happy with your favorite boots. My name is Zach Selwyn. You may remember me as a host from ESPN, Attack at the Show, or even Immortalized, that competitive taxidermy show on AMC. We lasted one episode. Anyway, three times a week, I'm bringing you the realest fake news of the day. It's the Saturday Night Live News Desk, but in an audible format. Listen to the Audio Up News Network on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jingle Jared. In my former occupation, I was the biggest jingle writer of all time. Now, I'm looking for a new job, speaking to every entrepreneur that I can find so I can find out what it's like to transition from one career to another. All of this expert advice has become the bedrock for a podcast I'm calling Occupational Therapy. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. y'all i'm uncle drank star of the ballad of uncle drank it is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank the series also stars luke wilson brian kelly chelsea lynn kinky friedman and billy zane as a talking blender named blendy you can find the ballad of uncle drank on sirius xm pandora stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts 